and can be found on page 748 of your pew Bible. Luke chapter 23. As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written a notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. May God bless the reading of his word. Uh, Let's pray together. Father, as we look at your word, and as we meditate on the death of Christ for us, we ask that you would be with us by your spirit, that these truths might take hold of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so as we've been told a couple of times with the worship leader and the presider, this is actually, in the Christian calendar, this is actually Palm Sunday, which commemorates Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem and the crowds praising him as he came in, thinking that he was going to be their king, thinking that he was going to come and lead a revolt against the occupying infidel Roman army, thinking that he was going to bring them liberty and prosperity and freedom. And that's, in the Christian calendar, what we celebrate. But our focus will not be on Palm Sunday today, because instead of holding services every night this week to to, uh, focus on all the things that happened in the Holy Week, we've actually spread this preaching over two months. So we looked at Palm Sunday a couple of months ago to begin the whole series. 
So today what we're going to look at is what we commemorate as Good Friday, or what you could call Black Friday, given the events of the day. And, and Good Friday, 745, we have a worship service here together, but it's not a preaching service. So this is more or less background for Good Friday service, because on Good Friday we'll be worshiping through song, we'll be reading scripture together, but we won't, there won't be any preaching. So this, you could say, is, is laying the foundation for our worship service on Good Friday. And by the way, I should note, many thanks to the children's ministry of this church, because they've agreed, to, they've offered to provide a children's program for all ages on Good Friday, so all parents can come out. Uh, you know, you'll have, your children will be cared for while we worship together. So what we look at today, what we look at today is the celebration, the commemoration of the death of Christ on the cross. Now we sang about that. And notice for us, in hindsight, from a Christian perspective, notice how we view the cross. This the power of the cross. Excuse me. Christ became Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. This the power of the cross, the Son of God slain for us. What a love. What a cost. We stand forgiven at the cross. For us, the cross is something extraordinary. For us, it's at the cross that we see the unimaginable depth of God's love for us, that he would send his only son to the cross to die for us. That's how we see the cross. Nobody in the first century, as Jesus hung on the cross, nobody would have seen the cross that way. This is a Christian perspective on the cross. This was not how the Romans viewed the cross. This is not how the Greeks viewed the cross. This is not how the Jews viewed the cross. This is not how Jesus' followers viewed the cross as Jesus hung there. All Luke tells us about the, the crucifixion itself is this. In three words in the Greek, all Luke says is, they crucified him. Luke told us a little bit about what before. He tells us a little bit about what goes after. But, but when he describes the actual act of crucifixion, he doesn't tell us. And there were different ways of crucifying people. So we can't be sure. Probably Jesus was nailed to the cross. Probably there was a crossbar. But there were different ways. And sometimes the Romans made great sport out of... If they had a lot of people to crucify, and sometimes they crucified a lot of people, they'd crucify him in different postures and, and different ways just for fun. Right? But Luke tells us nothing about it other than the, this, the simple reality. They crucified him. Now, in a way, well, for one reason he doesn't tell us more is that elaboration wasn't necessary. Crucifixion had been practiced for four or five centuries. A lot of people practiced crucifixion. Uh, Romans crucified people, but they weren't the first. Actually, sometimes Jews crucified Jews when there was civil war. 
So no elaboration was needed. Everybody knew what it meant. A, a slow, painful, and humiliating death. But there's another reason probably that Luke doesn't expand what it means. Because even ancient pagan Greek and Roman authors whose cultures, whose armies practiced crucifixion to cow their people they were invading, even Greeks and Romans wouldn't describe a crucifixion. They felt it was too gross. The, the, the people who could write, the literate, the philosophical, the high-minded, felt it was a too gross, too gruesome to put in print. You, you don't describe these things. So the Gospels actually tell us more than most Greek and Roman literature. One ancient author put it like this. When an army wants to cow a populace they're invading, there's three gruesome ways you can kill people to send a message. In, in ascending order of gruesomeness, first, you know, the third, you know, from the top, one thing you can do is you can cut off the heads. Stick the heads on a stake so everybody can see. That sends a message to all the other populace. The trouble with decapitation is it's too quick. So this ancient author said, a more effective deterrent is to burn people alive. Because then it takes several minutes while they're screaming. And you burn them alive in public and everybody can see. But even that takes only a few minutes. So the most effective form of deterrent is to crucify. Because it takes days. Typically, it takes days. And it's slow, it's humiliating, and you do it in public so everybody can see. So they wouldn't actually describe the process because it was so gruesome. It was so bad that you, by law you could not crucify a Roman citizen. Crucifixion was only for slaves and for insurrectionists in the provinces, the peasant type class. Uh, crucifixion was so bad, actually, that when hanging was eventually developed as a humane form of execution to replace crucifixion. It's so bad that hanging is a positive alternative. Only one ancient author describes crucifixion at any length, and he uses only three sentences. This is just not something that, that proper people focused on. It was too gruesome. That's how they viewed it. So Luke passes over it briefly without mention of the details. But what he does tell us is... He doesn't stress the barbarity of it, but what he does tell us is the meaning of the cross, its implications for us who follow Jesus, who come after Jesus. So turn with me to page 748, Luke chapter 23. Really what Luke develops here is three implications, three ramifications of the cross. He goes through one vignette after another, and he says, this is what the cross means for People, for this group of people, for that group of people. He takes us through three different vignettes. So turn with me, page 748 in your pew Bible. Verse, I'll begin with verse 27. A large number of people followed Jesus as he carried the cross, as he carried the cross beam, as Simon carried the cross beam for him up to Golgotha. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. 
Now, if ever you've been in Asia for a funeral, you'll know the whole practice of wailing. Uh, it used to be practiced in some cultures in America. It's still in Asia. It's certainly in ancient Palestine. As somebody's going off to die, and as they're dying, or at the funeral, you have mourners, sometimes professional mourners, and the family members all must wail. So there's a crowd of women following after Jesus, wailing as he goes off to de- execution. Now, notice Jesus' response to them. And Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, women, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the women who've had no kids. Blessed are the wombs that never bore, the breasts that never nursed. Childbirth was the pinnacle of uh, blessing for an Old Testament family, a Jewish family. But Jesus says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, blessed are those who have no children. The wombs that never bore, the breasts that never nursed. In those days, people will say to the mountains, fall on us. And to the hills, cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? This has got to be one of the most severe and painful parts of the New Testament. Here is Jesus going off to die. And as these women wail, contemplating, knowing what's ahead of him, he says, no, think about what's ahead of you. Because the cross is going to change things. It's going to change things in a tremendously positive way, we'll see, for some people. But the cross is going to change things in a horrific way for a lot of other people. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Weep for your children. Weep for the days when you'll be pleased if you don't have children. Weep for the days when the mountains, you'll, you'll plead with the mountains, crush us, kill us. And to the hills, put us to death. Jesus says there are times that are coming that are so bad that this looks like a little thing compared to what's coming. Now, let's think about this for a minute. You know, as Americans, we don't really like to, I have no pleasure in preaching this, and we don't like to think about it. You know, recently, um, a member of one of our fellowships sent out a, a there's been a recent study by a, an anthropologist, an academic anthropologist, spent four years, not just attending church, but spent four years participating fully in Christian churches. Two Christian churches over four years. She's an anthropologist, a professional. And then she wrote a book about it, an anthropological study of modern Christian churches in America. And here's what she said. One of her conclusions. They have no interest in God as a figure of majesty. They have no interest in judgment. One of our famous authors, she quotes, claims that God can't bear for us to turn away from him. He longs for us to like him. Now, she adds this editorial note. Evangelicals, most of whom are regular Bible readers, she said, it's hard to understand how evangelicals who regularly read their Bible could come to this conclusion about the God of Abraham or the God of Job. 
You see, what we've done is we've, we've pulled out those parts of the Bible we like. And we've kind of blind, you know, turned our backs on those parts of the Bible that are painful, that we don't like. You could say, it's hard to believe that, that we as evangelicals who read our Bibles could come to this conclusion about the God of Abraham or the God of Job. Or the God of Jesus. Because as Jesus goes to the cross, as he's about to die and the women are wailing for him, he doesn't say, don't wail. I'm going to rise. And then peace and grace will be upon all people. He says, this, cha- this heightens everything. You see, If I can use a dubious analogy, at the cross, God is going all in. Up until this time, if you wanted forgiveness, what would you do? If you did something really dastardly and you wanted forgiveness, you go take a lamb and you go bring it to the temple and the priest kills the lamb and sprinkles the blood on the altar and then you go away more or less forgiven. But it hasn't cost you a whole lot. I mean, a lamb was expensive. But it hasn't cost you a whole lot. It wasn't all that effective. But it wasn't all that costly. But now God goes all in. Because the the lamb didn't work. The lamb really didn't cleanse anybody. It just pointed forward to a time when Jesus would come. So now God goes, goes all in. And he gives his son. And we'll see subsequently... The son coming means that now, for the first time ever, forgiveness is possible. But the son coming means something else, far more severe. Because now, if we turn from God, we don't waste the money it costs to buy a lamb. We don't waste the cruelty done to a lamb. We waste the death of the son of God. And so he says to these women, don't wail for me. Wail for the consequence of what is coming. Wail for what's going to happen to this city. Wail for what's going to happen to this nation. And I tell you, you know, it did happen, right? One generation later, 35 years later, Israel finally got fed up with the infidel army Romans occupying them. And they revolted. And in 67 AD, Rome invaded. They brought their armies in. And, within, and, they, and, they, and they besieged the city of Jerusalem. And under that siege, starvation occurred and cannibalism. And in the city of Jerusalem, Jew was, the Jewish people divided into factions. And one faction was warring against another faction, even while the Romans were surrounding the city waiting to kill them. And if people grew tired of the fighting inside, they tried to sneak outside of the city. And the Romans would catch them and they would crucify them within sight of the city walls to intimidate the populace. And Josephus, an ancient Jewish historian who first resisted the Romans in Galilee and then was conquered and and wrote a history of the Jewish people for the Romans, Josephus describes it this way, he said. 
as the people tried to escape from the city under the cover of night, they'd have to fight their way out if they met Romans. And then, you know, the, the Romans would capture them and then crucify them. And he said, up to 500 people a day would be crucified on, on the walls outside of Jerusalem, uh, in, within sight of the walls. And he said the Romans began to run out of crosses, and they began to run out of places to put those crosses. Jesus said, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and your children. For the time will come when you will say, blessed are those who have no children. The time will come when you will say to the mountains, kill us now. Bury us alive. Because that will be more merciful than what you'll suffer. Maybe some of you have been coming to church for some time. Maybe some of you grew up in the church and heard the gospel all your lives. And you've never done anything with Jesus. Maybe you've just put him off. Said later, sometime, some other time. Maybe you didn't grow up in the church. Maybe you've hardly ever heard anything about the gospel. But this is one of the messages of the cross. God has sent his son to die for our sins so that we can have life with God. We waste it at our own peril. Jesus is not here threatening in us. When scripture comes with warning, it comes with warning to drive us to repentance. And we'll see as we go on that Jesus offers salvation here. But salvation from what? Salvation, first of all, from something that's worse than being crucified, worse than being buried alive. Salvation from something horrific. What happened to Jesus was tragic. But as he marches off to this tragedy, he reminds them or, or, or warns them that what will happen to Jerusalem won't be just tragic, it will be horrific. And it's a reminder to us that what happens to us if we don't embrace Jesus is not just tragic or horrific, but unimaginable. This is not a message that plays well in American culture, but it's what Jesus said as he marched off to his death. But there's a second message that comes from the cross. We see it in verses 32 to 34. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with Jesus to be executed. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said what? Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus starts with this warning of tragedy in order to bring a word of forgiveness. The judgment that comes on those who reject Jesus comes not because God is vindictive, not because Jesus is hostile. It comes because that judgment is just and right and true. Because God is not vindictive. And Jesus is not vengeful. Capture this. 
as he's being nailed to the crossbeam, as that cross is being dropped into the ground to stop with a thud, to pull all that pain down on his body, what Jesus is saying is forgiveness is possible. Forgiveness is available. This is why I'm dying. Not so that you will face torment, but that so that you can be delivered from torment. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Think of what the promise this is for all of us. Is there anything you or I can do that will ever be worse than actually driving the nails into Jesus' hands? Is there anything we could imaginably ever do that's worse than that? And yet, Jesus says about those men, those who nailed him to the cross, those Jewish leadership who who clamored for his execution, Jesus says about them, Father, forgive them. If you think today that there is some sin, no matter how dark and twisted, and sin is dark and twisted, that keeps you from God, go to this verse. Verse 34. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's not just Jesus' prayer for them who are crucifying him. It's his prayer for us, for any today who would reject him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So we see, first of all, that the cross worsens our guilt and our judgment. And yet we see that the cross makes possible our forgiveness. And we see a third implication of the cross in verses 35 to 43. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he's the Christ, the chosen one. And then the soldiers came up and mocked him. And they said, if you're really the king of the Jews, save yourself. And then even one of the criminals crucified beside him said, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. You see, three groups of people are chanting. Well, the first one is a chant. In Greek, it's just two words followed by two words. Saved others, save himself. No, others saved, save himself. Others saved. You know, they're chanting this. As Jesus hangs there, saved others, save himself. And, and then it's not enough. You know, his status is not lowered enough. He's not humiliated enough. If the Jewish leaders do this, then the Roman soldiers pick it up. Save yourself. If you can save others, save yourself. And then he's not humiliated enough yet. Well, you know, the religious leaders and then the, then the infidel Romans. And now a, a criminal being crucified next to him picks up the chant. Save others. Save yourselves. And then one of the other criminals being crucified said to him, Don't you fear God? You're under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he turns, this criminal turns to Jesus and says, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered, 
I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Do you see the message of the cross? Is that suddenly now, rejecting Jesus is so much more serious. Rejecting God. Because we're rejecting the sacrifice he made for us of his son. But we see that forgiveness is possible. And we see how salvation comes. All this criminal did was say, I am being crucified justly. He's confessing his own sin. And he's turning to Jesus for salvation. Jesus, save me or I die. And Jesus says, today, without doing anything else other than repenting of your sin and turning to me, today you will be with me in paradise. Saved others, save himself. It was precisely because Jesus did not save himself that he's able to save this criminal. It's because Jesus did not save himself that he's able to save us. One more time, and let me wrap it all up, as we turn to communion. Because in communion, this is what we commemorate most of all, is that Christ died for us. He gave his body, he gave his blood for us. And as a result then, if we turn from him, judgment is all the more severe. But forgiveness is possible. Salvation is granted to those who will turn to him. If you've never surrendered your life to Christ, let me urge you to pay attention to this. There will be no passage I know of in Scripture is clearer about the alternatives before you than this one is. God has gone to great lengths to save you. And he warns of the great depths that we'll sink to if we reject him. And for those of us who have given our life to Christ, let this be a reminder that Jesus' sacrifice for us is nowhere clearer than it comes in this passage. We rightly celebrate the cross. This, the power of the cross. Son of God, slain for us. What a love. What a cost. Let's pray together. Jesus, as we hear your words of judgment, we pray for those here who have never given their lives to you that they might escape this judgment, that you would work in their lives, that they would come to you, that they would seek forgiveness, that they would find in you the Savior. And for those of us, Father, who have given our lives to you, may this be truth for us. May we find you to be our Savior day by day. May we be as devoted to you as you have been to us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Please rise with me as we respond together in worship.